Hello, and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud with your host, cloud economist Corey Quinn. This weekly show features conversations with people doing interesting work in the world of cloud, thoughtful commentary on the state of the technical world, and ridiculous titles for which Corey refuses to apologize. This is Screaming in the Cloud. Welcome to Screaming in the Cloud. I'm Corey Quinn. I'm joined this week by Erica Windish, who's the founder and CTO of IOPipe. Uh, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. No, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, so let's start at the beginning. What is IOPipe? Oh, wow. Okay. So what we do is we provide tools for developers to build and operate their serverless applications from development through production, and increasingly also doing things like you know helping you extract business intelligence from your applications and correlate that with operational information and you know operational observability. Which just sounds like a lot of buzzwords, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like half of this space uh, sort of stands out that way. Uh, in fact, I first found out that you folks existed at reInvent last year. There was a big Midnight Madness launch, and they were going to be announcing some things. And frankly, none of us cared about that. We were there to see Shaquille O'Neal as DJ Diesel, um, apparently, quote unquote, dropping sick beats, as the kids say. But while I was there watching your presentation, a couple of other things, that came out were in some ways more entertaining even than watching a seven-foot-tall gentleman uh, spin discs for fun. So it was it was neat to see. Uh, to my understanding from back then and as continues to evolve now as I continue to work in this space, effectively what you do is provide visibility and metrics around AWS Lambda. Is that more or less how you're positioning yourselves these days? Is there a, I mean, you can obviously pour more buzzwords onto it, but is that effectively encapsulating what you do? I, I would I would say it's the baseline for what we do. And, you know, we have some competitors, and I would say our competitors definitely fit firmly within those, you know, more firmly within those parameters where we have, you know, I think we've, we're, we're growing out of basic monitoring and basic visibility because we have things like profiling, we have core dumps, um, we have now we look at like things like incoming input events. So if you're doing a Lexus kill, you can look, you can like filter by a specific conversation with a specific user if you want to, um, and that just works out of the box, right? And those are things that none of our competitors, for instance, are able to do. So I don't know what to, what to call this, but we're I think we're doing something new and unique. I would agree with your, for the first part of your last sentence, which is it's difficult to know what to call this. I mean, someone would argue that in, in any significantly exciting technology, a battle always breaks out either about pronunciation or about what it is you want to call the thing that you've built. Uh, we've seen it with monitoring versus observability. So to that end, where do you stand on use of the word serverless? I think the word serverless is fine. Um Initially, you know, I was like, I, I kind of see the point people are making, you know, people make a big deal of the name, but nobody complains about the term stateless. Like, we've agreed that we could build stateless applications, but they're still state, right? You know, your TCP session has state. Your, you know, the physical link layer has state of a wire physically being connected, right? Um, your application, your user provides a session cookie and your state is stored in your database. So there is state. It's that this part of code 
doesn't necessarily worry about the state, right? You put the state in different layers of your application, you manage your state in certain ways, and you ignore the places where you still have state. Like the fact that you connect to a database, the fact that you're storing data in a database is taking that state and moving it somewhere. So it's like, I have this temporary state by the nature of running an application, and then I store it elsewhere. I don't maintain the state. And I think servers are, and serverless is very much the same way, right? Yes, they're still servers, but we don't care about them. We move them somewhere else. We've moved the concern for them in the same way we've moved state. But I guess because servers are a more concrete thing that you can physically see, that there's more pushback around that term than with state because state is such an abstract concept. You can't see state, right, generally. But you can see servers. But I think that these are similar, but we complain about one and don't complain about the other. Very aptly put. <laughs> so how long has IOPipe been in business? So we've been in business for two years, a little more than two years. Um, we launched about a year ago. I started on this project maybe two and a half years ago in the terms of me leaving Docker and saying, I'm going to go do you know, something around serverless and next generation applications and figuring out what that meant. And then, you know, through customer conversations, through searching for a co-founder and finding Adam and founding the company, you know, we, we found the focus and the vision, you know, and, and kind of supplanted that, you know, and incorporate it and so forth about two years ago. There's a, if you take a look, I think Lambda wasn't really announced until 2015. So that's less than a year between the announcement of a thing that no one really knew what to make of and you effectively jumping on this in a very, very early uh, state. Uh, how did the idea of building a, I guess, window of visibility into this new thing that no one quite understood what to do with uh, come about? kind of through two threads. One was talking to users and developers on Lambda and assessing what their needs were. We just had lots of conversations to find out where the pain points were. Like, where do you need help? What can we fix? Right? Is there a product here? Is there something that you need that we can serve and serve, you know, and and fix for you and build a product? So we were seeing a, a trend in users of developers of serverless looking for monitoring observability um, as well as the ability to really understand things like sessions you know for HTTP sessions for you know users of those applications for users of Alexa applications tracking Alexa skills like these are all things that we saw and you know so we saw a market need for that but more so like we also so the original vision of IO pipe like my vision when I left docker was more ambitious and I saw that mon like observability of the infrastructure was a necessary evil to get to a place where I wanted to get to, which was more of automated healing, um, automated application construction. Like I wanted, you know, like I wanted machines to do all this work for us, including like like the idea of like say Amazon Glue for instance, like this idea of gluing together serverless applications or doing things like AWS Step Functions. When we build these units really small and they have very open and standardized channels of communication and just process events, if we standardize event processors, we have the standardized input, we have the standardized output, and they're all very, very small, we could just 
use machine learning to construct them. And uh, that was kind of my original vision and was like, well, okay, well, it turns out we need a feedback loop for this, um, which is observability. And that just didn't exist. So we started building the observability tools and we started talking to users and seeing they need observability tools. So we just we just went straight down that path. And I, I think maybe maybe like in some ways we're getting back to some of those original vision ideas, but you know, very strongly staying within where there's a market need. Which is a fascinating way of, I guess, almost stumbling into an offering that's definitely resonating within the market. Um, to that end, do you see that customers are using Lambda at significant scale at this time? Or are people still in early days doing it for proof of concept and not really rolling it out statewide? I mean, it, I mean, it depends, right? Um, there are some organ- you know, very large organizations that are you know, using Lambda for a number of projects that may be big or small. This is actually something that, like, I've, a conversation I've had with um, people where there was some focus in the market in some, like, other, like, developer evangelists and um, enthusiasts giving talks, and they were focusing on the idea of, like, just go straight into production, go straight into building these applications. Like these are applications that are ideal for Lambda and kind of just like starting there. And I was like, hold on a second, right? Like it's actually okay to say you can build simple applications, ad hoc applications on Lambda to, to learn it. And then, you know, land and expand, right? Get in there, get familiar with Lambda on like low risk applications and then get into big applications, and I and I definitely see both of these. I've seen corporations, that, uh, companies, go straight into. I'm going to put you know a billion dollars of it, of billing into um, Lambda, right? And like just you know a whole Fortune 100 is like we're going to put all of our billing in Lambda, like just straight off the bat. And I've also seen big companies that say you know what we're going to do this small project. We're going to do some cron jobs. We're going to become familiar with it and understand where there are edge cases and then grow. So it's a mix. I would say it's probably a lot of maybe the latter rather than the former because, I mean, I think it's easier to start with small things and expand out than to have big top-down initiatives to like rewrite giant stacks, you know, in Lambda. <laughs> Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, you're probably the single company that is best positioned as a global observer of what trends people are implementing with Lambda other than Amazon themselves. One of the, I guess, early use cases and a lot of the examples that Amazon themselves give about implementing Lambda tend to involve around performing certain tasks in a AWS service environment, taking a tag and propagating it to a secondary or tertiary resource, um, taking a bit of data from one service and then passing it to another and so on and so forth. Is that, I guess, the primary use case that you start to see? Is it people using this for something else entirely uh, to run full-featured applications? Are you just seeing it done as glue code? I mean, what what is the current state of the Lambda ecosystem? I mean, there's definitely a mix and there's I would say that I, I kind of like don't agree with this notion that like Lambda is just filling service gaps in AWS, right? Um, you know, Lambda as say stored procedures isn't necessarily addressing 
a lack of capabilities of the database. It's like you have custom business logic you need to implement. Um, you know, we'd use Kinesis and like, so there are some things that we do with Kinesis that's like, yeah, we could technically just use Firehose or we could just use, um, you know, some of the other AWS services that do this for us. We chose to write our own code for a number of reasons, but yeah, it's a mix. I, so like I was just thinking like, so I wrote this land on edge that does JWT verifications for S3. So instead of doing pre-signed URLs with S3, if you have a valid JWT JSON web token, you can just access the data, right? You don't need to make your, you don't need to use your, your jot to your Lambda based, you know, your API gateway Lambda to like sign this request on S3 and return back a signed URL, pre-signed URL. You can just use that JWT directly to S3 through Lambda at Edge, right? But this is the case where like, well, wouldn't it just be cool if Amazon just supported, you know, like JSON Web Tokens for S3 in the first place? So like, I could see that perspective, but it also provides so much more over that, right? Because Amazon can't predict what's going to be popular, right? Like JSON Web Tokens are a thing that kind of came from somewhere. And, you know, the industry came around and said, we're going to build this JSON Web Token thing. But there's also basic authentication. There was digest authentication. There's, you know, LDAP authentication to web services. And, you know, Amazon could have went and supported all of those, right? Or they can just say, we can give you a mechanism where you do implement it however you want to and give you the power of open source to share that code and to build an ecosystem around us instead as a platform. And then on the other side, Amazon is, or our users are building web APIs and web applications and microservices and what I now call nanoservices around, around in Lambda. And I think those are real applications that are, as long as you can build a quote unquote 12 factor application, you can build it on Lambda. A question that I have, though, comes also down to the, re- the basic reliability of the platform. If I take a look right now at my Lambda functions over the past day, I've had 30 invocations, which means that there are large swaths of time during which Lambda could have been completely down, and I would have had no idea. There is no formal SLA around it. So from my perspective, I'm looking at this, and given that no one has complained about the thing that my Lambda functions power, and no one has uh, blown up uh, my email about this, I assume that the reliability has been perfect. How does that map to what you're seeing in, I guess, the real world as people start to scale this significantly? Is Lambda fairly stable? Is it something that tends to drop out in weird ways that are difficult to diagnose? I would say it's been pretty stable recently. There are some outliers that are not recent. Um, when you know they first launched and they first went GA, there were a couple issues that were resolved fairly quickly, mostly in US East 1. But um, it's been pretty stable since then. I, I The last major outage, like significant outage I can accurately place was, you know, the the great S3 failure. Um, and that was because Lambda is uses S3 for storage internally. And when S3 went down, Lambda went down too. Got you. When you do see Lambda issues, how do those tend to manifest? I, th- I feel like there's not enough exposure to how these things break. Mm-hmm. Is it delay and in invocation? Do they fail to invoke at all? Does it hang and add latency spikes or something else entirely? 
No, it's actually really, really interesting. So like, you know, because as you said, you know, we have maybe some of the best visibility into this outside of Amazon themselves. Um, we definitely have internal visibility into, you know, anonymized statistics of what's happening on Lambda um, that we could look at. And things that we noticed were that, well, a few things. So there's like a, there's a, a built-in container cycle. So um, there's this idea, you, there's cold starts because containers are spun up. Well, containers are also killed, right? There's a life cycle that's anywhere between four and a half minutes to four and a half hours for a container servicing a Lambda function, of which a Lambda function might be served by multiple containers, right? But each container and every process that's in that container um, is supposed to live for between four and a half minutes to four and a half hours. We've seen cases where they've been alive for eight hours or 16 hours instead. And then sometime, you know, around that 10-hour mark or whatever, you know, Amazon starts announcing that there are, you know, like service problems. <laughs> and like, so we've we've actually have kind of noticed some of these failures before Amazon has, because we can, or at least before they've acknowledged them, because we can see that those containers aren't being reaped at the right time. And like this may have been a case where like that was literally the bug. Like maybe they weren't reaping, which meant that they were spawning too many containers and they had resource, um, you know, like exhaustion in the Lambda service because they weren't properly garbage collecting containers. We've seen things where um, functions would be multiple evoked on a cons like consistently, where every Lambda function was evoking three or four times. Um, instead of once, uh, but these things have mostly settled down to a very significant degree as the product has matured. I mean, these were mostly issues around launch, like initial launch. And that makes a fair bit of sense. Uh, are you able to talk at all about the infrastructure that powers IOPipe? Uh, in other words, when there starts to be a Lambda issue, is that something that impacts the performance of the monitoring system that watches Lambda? Yeah, um, so we are based on, on Lambda. So we actually uh, consume reports from... So a user's Lambda runs, it sends data um, directly to a, a collector service that we run. That puts data into Kinesis. None of that touches Lambda at that up to that point. So we're not dependent on Lambda um, or any of Amazon serverless products for ingesting the data and getting it into our account, which is good because it does de-risk us from some, if there were a failure in Lambda, we wouldn't be affected by it at that point. And at that point, it's in Kinesis. So once it's in Kinesis, and you know, even if there was a failure with any of the services that we've built internally on Lambda, we would be, you know, we could just process that at a delay. But that, you know, feeds into, um, the Kinesis feeds into to several Lambdas that, write things to our databases and run our alerts and, um, you know, run various, you know, intelligence tasks against them. And so we use Lambda very extensively in, internally. Um, basically, I think that the collector service is perhaps the only service that's not on Lambda for, very, you know, for specific reasons that we've chosen um, to de-risk against certain things, um, particularly against would there be a Lambda failure or um, for latency, but when we deploy that service, um, API Gateway did not have regional endpoints, which it does do now. Uh, but at the time, it didn't. 
I know it's something that we just that we need it. So it is something that we have actually reconsidered is if we would eliminate that service because we could actually implement that service um, without EC2 and could implement that with API Gateway instead without any Lambda, actually. Gotcha. I was wondering on some level if there was going to be like a dark secret of surprise. We actually run this entire thing in a data center somewhere that's in the middle of nowhere because we, we think this cloud thing's a fad. It's always interesting when you start scratching to see how things like this are built under the hood. I actually had a conversation with somebody who suggested we we do that, actually. Like, that was a legitimate proposal. <laughs> was this person trying to sell you colo space by any chance? <laughs> I don't think they were, actually. <laughs> so as far as where you see today, I, at least from my perspective, Lambda started off as a curiosity and a bit of a toy. Uh, three years in, it's more than that. I'm seeing it used for production-level workloads in a number of different environments, and we're seeing the platform itself become a lot broader as well in the context of being able to support new runtimes that weren't there at launch, new versions, and... For example, sign more resources. I believe at the last reInvent, the RAM limit doubled. Where do you see the platform evolving into in the future? I mean, when it becomes less of a toy, even than it is now, uh, five years from now, what does that look like? I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's a toy now. I, I think you can build really amazing advanced applications on it. And the limitations of Lambda, to me, are very freeing, um, where... You know, it, it's enforcing some of the twelve-factor design app. You know, decisions like twelve-factor was a a guideline, and Lambda enforces that opinionated stack design. Right, it forces you to build applications this way. Like things like the five-minute window kind of makes you build applications a certain way, which is a good thing. It does maybe restrict you from doing some sort of like you know map reduce kind of jobs. But for most applications, I do think it's um, very much not toy applications. You can build, you know, any kind of microservice, HTTP service you're looking to build, you can do it with API Gateway and Lambda. Um, I think there are some limitations that are kind of an issue that are actually not even restricted just to Lambda, that are just, Amazon's going to get there, but, you know, they, they need to work on it. Um, so, for instance, like if you want to, uh, this is something we're dealing with right now is that if you want to expose um, a API gateway service, well, so we had a service that was based on Elastic Beanstalk, right, that, our collector, and exposing that collector over a VPN, you cannot use either CloudFront, nor can you use uh, ELBs or ALBs for that when you're doing it over a VPN. So Amazon just announced um, API gateway over a VPN, or VPC, I'm sorry, VPC. And again, now it's like, okay, great. Now actually this works. Now we can point to, we need you to have API gateway to, to ALB, but how we do TLS termination, right? And these are like problems that like I really wish Amazon would solve. Like, So I guess what I'm saying is like some of the services around I wish they did a little better um, around those. Um, Kinesis video streams, for instance, doesn't integrate with Lambda. So it's like there are places where I just wish Lambda were was, or I wish that they did a thing that they just don't do yet. And, and they're getting there. They're working on these things. But sometimes like living on that cutting edge, you definitely run into like some of these services that aren't Lambda 
that have limitations that I wish they didn't. If you had a magic wand, what would you change about Lambda? I think this is kind of like maybe a selfish answer because I work on like this observability platform, but it's this thing that um, that was actually in Azure Functions that was pretty neat was um, this idea of you run your function and then you can define um, basically handlers for the output of that function as well as like different like pipes out of it. So you could basically have your function run return some value and not just return data back to the caller, but have that output basically teed off, piped off, you know, forked to other receivers directly, right? So like a thing that you basically in Lambda have to use step functions for is a thing that like Lambda, a Lambda execution itself, right? Like the Lambda execution itself could be an event trigger for another Lambda, for instance like directly would be really, really neat, right? It's like when this, whenever this Lambda evokes, take the output of it and run another Lambda function or put the output of it into Kinesis. Like that's a really, I, I think a neat thing that would actually enable me to do some things that I can't do today um, and that Azure actually kind of did do out of the box. Um, and there's some things they did out of the box that I don't like um, and things they didn't do out of the box that I wish they did do over at Azure, but that was like the one thing I was like, wow, that's really cool. And I still kind of wish that Amazon had something like that. So some sort of like queue or Kinesis stream or something for the output of those functions. That was, I mean, like not, not ingesting CloudWatch data because you could do that. Um, like you do the CloudWatch stream, but something that was a little bit more alternative pipelines for data out of it. I, it's, I guess it's kind of hard to explain. It's kind of ambiguous. It's maybe something to just explore. Very fair. Taking a bit of the opposite approach for a second, as you take a look at how people are implementing Lambda in various environments, what aspects of working with Lambda functions do you find that people either struggle to wrap their heads around, they misunderstand, or I guess fundamentally are having trouble with today? Because none of this stuff is easy or intuitive the first time you see it, I can assure you. I spent most of my time learning how this stuff works by getting it hilariously wrong. I mean, I, so for me, like, I didn't, I personally didn't have as much of a challenge here. And, but I do see others having that challenge. And I think it's um, a way of thinking. I think that a lot of people implementing microservices, implementing, you know, these next generation applications, microservice applications, like they, they came to it with this monolithic mindset and adapted to it. Like they weren't familiar with actor-based programming models. They weren't per- familiar with things like Erlang or Haskell. When I'm saying Erlang, I'm thinking OTP in particular. A lot of developers aren't aware of message queues, right? I mean, of course, many are, but that kind of you know distributed computing, distributed computing problems, you know, building applications at scale is a thing that a lot of developers don't have direct familiarity with. They're just like, I'm going to build a node app and build it stateless and, you know, I'll throw an easy two and I'll, you know, throw a more easy two instances at it. And one of the challenges with Lambda that I think catches people by surprise is that Lambda scales so easily and so readily that its massive scale can become an issue if you don't plan for it. Where 
you can easily find yourself with a thousand concurrent invocations and a thousand active containers and overload your database, right? You can just throw so much more at a database. You can throw so much more at a service. You can get so much concurrency and parallelization accidentally with Lambda that you run into bottlenecks that you didn't run into before because you just said, oh, well, a single EC2 instance is fine. I'm just going to make you know a vertical stack here, right? I'm just going to make these giant vertical silos. And I'm just going to build them taller, right? And instead, you now have a distributed systems problem, and a lot of developers just aren't familiar with those. I think that's where there's this kind of surprise catch where it's so easy to build distributed systems that if you don't, you're not familiar with them, you you just find yourself creating bottlenecks in things like databases that you just didn't expect. If you're not, well, if you're new to it, if you, you know, if you don't know to expect that. Scale brings up an interesting question. Uh, the entire premise of any sort of cloud computing environment is that's the beautiful part. You can, you can scale infinitely, which is absolutely awesome until you actually try to do it. Come to find out there are theoretical upper limits. You cannot provision 2 million containers at the same time and expect something not to fall over. Do you see indications that there are capacity limits around Lambda that uh, that are at a point where it starts to affect individual consumers? Or does the shared nature of the platform make that very hard even to determine from the outside? I, I would say it's probably hard to determine from the outside. And I wouldn't even say Lambda is shared. Um, I would say that there's an implementation detail of Lambda that is not a, like Amazon does not guarantee this but it is in implementation detail that you basically get your own virtual machines to run your containers on. Amazon's managing a fleet of EC2 instances just for you, uh, for your Lambdas, you know, as implementation detail. You know, they, that, again, is not a guarantee from them, but that's just what, how they've chosen to implement it. And so I, I, don't, I think that the limitations of Lambda are probably closer to that of EC2, in reality, um, things where there are limitations are like the 75 gigabyte limit for all function code uh, per account, uh, which some users have run into. Oh, I've run into that on a single function for myself because I write really inefficient nonsense. So you can't actually do that. I, I think per function, you have a limit of like 500 megs compressed, I think. So you basically need to like divide 75 gigabytes by... 500 megabytes. Yeah, I think it was something like 75 megabytes compressed, which in all seriousness and snark and witticism aside, I did brush into with some of my early functions as I started trying to install everything into a monolithic function of pip dependencies over in Python land. Oh, yeah. It turns out that's a terrible anti-pattern and I should never do that. Hey, putting a monolith into a into a serverless function does not make you uh, suddenly living in the future. You do have to break these things out architecturally, as it turns out. I, I mean, I, I don't know that you really need to do that. I mean, I, I think there's actually some valid use cases for saying running WordPress inside of Lambda, and I think that can be fine. Um, uh, Cloud Custodian is an example of an app that is kind of a very large open source monolithic application. I think it's like 40,000 lines of code. Um, it's very big. But it's kind of fine. There's some advantages to it. Every Alexis skill is a monolith, um, for better or worse. Um, 
And it's just by design, you have to build it that way. So people are going to do it. Um, I think tools like IOPipe do actually help with that. Uh, but I think we got off your actual question. <laughs> <laughs> Which is absolutely fine. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to mention that you have coming up or talk about that would be relevant or interesting? Or where can people find you? Uh, well, um, I'm going to be speaking. Uh, I'm going to be keynoting for Serverless Days London, uh, I guess, next month. Um, that's next month already. Um, I will be uh, speaking at Velocity London. So it handles all of our, you know, our, our London people. I have a bunch of other conferences that I use so many that I can't even remember where they are and what they are. But um, I think I can say that I'll be speaking at reInvent. I think that's happening. So you can find me there. You can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash ewindish. And, you know, IOPipe. So we have a community Slack and you can find our website and you can, you know, reach out to us as well. So yeah, um, I've also been doing Twitch streaming, uh, twitch.tv slash ewindish. Um, I've not been active in the last few weeks, but I'll probably get back to streaming soon. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. My name is Corey Quinn, and this is Screaming in the Cloud. This has been this week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud. You can also find more Corey at screaminginthecloud.com or wherever fine snark is sold. 